Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to wherever you are listening to the sound of my voice. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you want to make sure that you do not miss an episode of the conversations that I'm generating with really, really thought-provoking, skilled, proven skilled individuals, then please make sure that you follow me on iTunes or wherever you're hearing the sound of my voice. Recognizing that C-Suite Network is my company that works for me and allows me to put my podcast on their network so that we can reach leaders who are interested in being better and doing better in the workplace. My guest today is probably one of the most delightful persons that I've met recently. And I can say that with truth and honesty because he and I like to giggle. And oh, by the way, he is a Disney (laughs) recurrent. His name is Dr. Steve Iacovelli, and he is trademarked the gay leadership dude, which we are going to dig into that one. (laughs) But he's the owner and principal of Top Dog Learning Group, LLC, a learning and development, leadership, change management, and diversity inclusion consulting firm based out of Orlando, Florida. And he has affiliates across the globe. Steve and Top Dog have had the pleasure of working with some of the great client partners who they consider to be part of their pack. He worked with Fortune 500 guests like the Walt Disney Company and Bayer to to amazing nonprofits like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the American Library Association. He's also worked with large universities like Ohio State University and the University of Central Florida, two small entrepreneurial rock stars like the International Training and Development and GovMojo, Inc., (laughs) Steve and Top Dog have thoroughly enjoyed helping their client partners grow, develop, expand, and be successful with their corporate learning, change management, diversity and inclusion, and we're going to dig into that too, and leadership consulting goodness. With over 25 years experience in leadership, strategy, organizational leader, excuse me, organizational learning and communication, Steve is a rare breed of professional that understands the power of using academic theory and applying it. So you know what I say, folks, you can acquire knowledge, but it means nothing until you can apply the knowledge. (laughs) Okay. And my focus is if you're going to close the gap, which is the name of this podcast, you have to understand the application of the knowledge that you have in corporate settings to achieve business results. Oh, and by the way, he's fond of dogs. So right there, my daughter will love him. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, the fabulous Dr. Steve. Oh, thanks, Denise. What a a lovely intro. My goodness, I have a lot to live up to. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I am sure you will be over the top. So I usually start by asking, I guess, you know, tell me something about you that probably nobody else knows. But I think, (laughs) how did you come up with the gay leadership dude? So... I'll kind of explain the title and then I'll explain how the title came about. So, so by using that, that self-given title, you automatically know three things about me. First, that I'm gay. <laughs> Second, that I self-identify as a dude. And then third, that I really like to focus on leadership. And, and it came about back when I was right, just 
starting to write my latest book, Pride Leadership. And my publisher, Jennifer Grace from Publisher Purpose Press, incredibly smart woman, great marketer. And she said, what's your personal brand? I'm like, what? I got Top Dog. That's my business. Like, no, no, no. Pretend you, you know, Top Dog is insanely successful. You sell it. What's your brand? I'm like, ooh, that's a good idea. I never thought about that. So I was kind of kicking some things around and, and I thought, well, you know, the gay leadership dude seems to be applicable. And what I also like about it too, is that, you know, as a white cisgender gay dude, I'm throwing my otherness out there. And I think that's important to be, to be uh, known for some of the, the, the demographics and, and, and kind of squelch maybe some assumptions that people may or may not have. And so I like using it. And then a friend of mine recommended, of course, a legal friend of mine said, you should, tra- you should trademark that. I'm like, really? That's a good idea. And so we <laughs> went through the patent and yes, I finally got the certificate that says you, know, the circle R is now legal to put with that particular phrase. All right. Look at you talk about a journey. (laughs) So let's just kind of talk a little bit about that because, you know, in the world of diversity and inclusion in particular, you know, when you're the only or the one or the first, (laughs) you tend, you have, you don't really want to be identified by external titles, I'll say. Sure out of it. But but the reality is, is that is as much a part of you as anything else. And the fact that other people are uncomfortable with those titles or that part of you, mm-hmm. really, I'd like to say is really none of your business. Their business. <laughs> Agreed. That's their issue. Go on. Yep. But I think it takes a lot of courage and it's a real call to courage to step out and to say, and, and not just say it, but own it and claim it which mm. is what is interesting about the gay leadership leadership too, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that you, you, you just did it. And the way you talk now and, and the times we've talked prior to this, you're always so like, Hey, this is me. I'm here. I show up this way, you know, and it's not that you don't care the impact of what it is, but it's more like, this is all of me. And like any other relationship, there's some parts about people that we like and some parts mm-hmm. we don't. There are people we would say are our friends and others we would just say these are our colleagues and then there's family, okay? <laughs> right. But ha- tell me a little bit about your journey to getting really comfortable and being like, hey, this is it. And what advice would you give to other people who are the one, the only, or the first in getting comfortable mm-hmm. with being in that title? It, it's a fantastic question. And, and it's... When I, I mean, I figured my authentic self out after undergrad, kind of right when I was entering the workforce back in the, you know, 19, blah, 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 you know, kind of thing. And back in the mid nineties. And, you know, I mean, like being gay, being queer wasn't super crazy, but it also wasn't like, you know, yay, let's embrace you and here's rainbows and unicorns and stuff. And so I just, once I kind of figured my myself out, who I truly was, I was just like, I never want to hide that stuff mm-hmm. anymore. That's like ridiculous. And, you know, I a hundred percent respect there's certain people. And if you look at the latest data from the human rights campaign, I'm not, I don't think they did the study last year, of course of COVID, but the latest studies showed that just about 50% of us LGBTQ plus people are in the closet at work. Mm. And that still astounds the heck out of me that half of my community doesn't feel comfortable to share their authentic self in the workplace. So what does that mean? Well, you know, 
that means they're hiding their pronouns of the people that they you know are are with and their partners and stuff. They don't have the personal pictures and and all those things. That takes energy. And I just knew very early on that I don't want to waste that energy to to hide all that stuff because it's going to take away energy that I have to do really cool things. And mm-hmm. and I was lucky enough to have a, a a beautiful upbringing, supportive family that you know it's just like this is who I am. This is my authentic self. And if you're not cool with it, we can have a conversation why you're not cool with it. But at the end of the day, it's not going to change who I am. So, and and it's funny because I carry that into any leadership position or any leadership situation that I've been in is that having courage, having empathy, you, you know, being strong in your convictions and your value system are all things that make a, a good leader a good leader, regardless of who you are. And mm-hmm. it's it's actually, you know, my otherness, if you will, it, it's been a massive blessing because, you know, I could have just been, this is not a, a disrespectful thing, but I could have just been another uh, white cisgendered dude and, you know, and all that advantage that comes with that where, you know, when, when you add that little bit of otherness to me, I have so much more empathy for the rest of us who are others. And, and, and I, I am so happy that I have that valuable experience. So what would you give in terms of advice to those individuals who are not so comfortable being identified with their otherness, as you call it? I, I think it starts with understanding the why. And, and in, in my book, Pride Leadership, I talk about what I use the term drone perspective. You know, like you get into a drone and you, it zooms above you and has a little camera and you can kind of see the whole situation. That's, you know, helicopter perspective is another kind of phrase. That's a hard thing for any leader to do, but it, it is one of the most valuable things that we can do as a, as a smart leader is, is get out of our own head and really start to understand why am I thinking this? Why am I doing this? Why am I acting this way? And if, if you're not in that comfort zone to lead with authenticity, find out the reason why and, mm-hmm. and start to unpack that as the beginning. Are there, you know, are there tools, tips? I mean, obviously your book is going to help people kind of, uh, get through this conversation, but I find on my end that we really need to say it out loud mm-hmm. for it to really kind of penetrate and for us to hear, you know, everything sounds great in your head until you pick your brown, your <laughs> mouth engages. And then suddenly right. you go, Ooh, probably should have said that uh, out of yeah. it. And I think, you know, with all of the press and the, the, the attention on, you know, people are weary, you know, if you're the Mm -hmm. one, the only, the other, you are weary of people asking you questions that are really insensitive, you know, for a black woman, I'm tired of people wanting to know how my hair works. You know, (laughs) I also get, you know, tired of the conversation of, wow, you really speak intelligently or well, (laughs) kind of thing. And then even as an HR person, the fact that I have an MBA from Washington University, executives would kind of go, oh, like, you understand the business, which is still, (laughs) I know, right? And I'm not quite sure, is it because I'm Black? Is it because I'm a woman or is it because I'm in HR? Uh, <laughs> lots of reasons why <laughs> my little brain could twirl right, a little bit. Right, right. But I, I think, you know, is what would be something that you have that you can do? Mm-hmm. I get the helicopter perspective, the drone perspective, mm-hmm. but until you get to kind of ricochet your words off of someone yep. and and kind of talk through the emotional agility that get sparked when somebody talks to you, particularly around those insensitive questions that people are just Mm -hmm. going to ask or just, you know, it's, it's insensitive and it can come from curiosity. So when I, when I talk about it in my book, I have a list of insensitive questions that everybody that just are kind of like the top things people get asked, but what can I do so that Mm. I feel okay 
in a world that really doesn't understand me and is probably going to step into some stereotype or bias boo-boo. Yeah, I, I would I would say there's there's three pieces of advice I would give someone in that situation. The first is going through the the process of understanding mindfulness. And if you're not familiar with mindfulness, it's really being able to kind of look at your own actions and thoughts without judgment. So just just being aware. So lots of great apps out there. You can play around with that. Google, you know, mindfulness. Dr. Ellen Langer's the mother of mindfulness. You love her work. It's kind of great. So that's the first thing. The other is 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 really kind of that awareness of your own unconscious biases that may be getting in the way of your own success. Okay. And and I know a lot of times when you look at some of the research that if if I'm a member of a disenfranchised group, I can sometimes have a bias against my own group, and mm-hmm. it, they unfortunately plays out too way too often. But project Implicit is a fantastic way to just start to explore that understanding. Because once you understand your own unconscious biases, then you can start to work to de-bias yourself. And I think that's an important thing for any uh, inclusive leader to go and do. And, and I think the third is really just having that opportunity to open up and listen to others and, 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 and insert others here. And, and it's what Stephen Covey says, you know, we often listen to respond versus listen to understand. And I, and I think that's very true, especially in Western, especially in North American society. And, and North American business. And, and I think just, just really stopping and trying to listen to all those perspectives with that non-judgmental, now we're pulling the mindfulness in, are, are three just great places to start in order to be a bit more successful. Well, it brings to bear because most of your life work in corporate America has really been, been around leadership strategy and organizational learning, mm-hmm. but leadership development in general, yes. right? Yes. So Okay, so let's do a time capsule thing back in the 1990s versus today. Yep. What are the things that really have changed in the workplace that have shifted our idea about kind of the command and control kind of leader mm-hmm. that used to be taught or still is a taught if we yeah, all are really honest yeah. about it, right? <laughs> versus the going forward. Yeah. We have to start really reinventing this idea of leadership. So can yep. you do a compare and comp- contrast for me? I, I think the biggest thing if I if I get in my drone to use my own analogy, if if I really think about then versus now it's been this beautiful influence of, of feminine leadership, of that mm-hmm. that uh, emotional leadership, that understanding of all of us others, that empathetic leadership, whatever phrases you'd like to put in. It's less about the, you go do what I tell you, and more of the, hey, what should we do together? And, and I think that's that's the biggest, most beautiful difference is that we as uh, we being you know, leadership in general have really opened up to understand that you know, emotions are fantastic things to have in the workplace. You know, understanding you know, people of differing experiences and backgrounds should be in that leadership role, not just this type of person or that type of person. That extroverts aren't the only way to do leadership. Introverts are fantastic leaders. And it's really kind of that evolution of, of embracing the difference or the diversity of the leadership and allowing that brilliance to really kind of play out. And so when you're talking about diversity of leadership, you're not just talking about gender orientation, race, ethnic, the kind of Title VII perspective. Correct. But really, you know, some people are from Stanford, some people are from CPCC, which is a community college here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's having people who have bring different perspectives to the Absolutely. workplace. So that's one thing. But how do we create environments 
where communication can really thrive because leaders to be able to influence people have to, I believe people have to be heard, seen Mm -hmm. and relevant, feel relevant in the workplace. And the feeling relevant is my part, making you feel like what you say is meaningful. Being heard and seen is your part because you've got to kind of come to the party saying, Hey, I have something I'm going to share with it. And I have the courage to do that. But so in the leadership development program, what are things that we should be inserting that we don't usually have previously? My, my favorite thing is, you know, and bring it from a diversity and inclusion lens, mm-hmm. you know, we, we talk about, oh, we need to have a business that's diverse. Okay. Yeah. So the similarities and differences in people. Awesome. But then it, it moved to inclusion. You know, oh, we need to make sure that people aren't just it let in the door. They're actively involved. Fantastic. But now the phrasing is creating a sense of belonging. And I think this is a leader's leader's job. By creating a sense of belonging, all of, all of the others, regardless of who you are, is not just at the table, but has the feeling that I belong, I'm respected, my opinion matters. And, and that's that, that difference of perspective is embraced by the business. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that's every leader's job is to foster that sense of belonging within their teams and beyond so that it, it's not just embracing um, those uniquenesses, but using it as an uh, innovative and business advantage. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I, I always use this story. I was um, working with a large manufacturing company and several years ago, and they they really tried to embrace the concept of, of, of being inclusive. And so they had their product development team, and it was all sorts of different demographics. And so they created this, this widget, whatever it was, took it to market, and then realized, oh my goodness, we created something that only right-handed people can use. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they just, was it, 12, 15% of the population is left-handed. And so they're like, oh, rats, we just out of the gate cut off 15% of our market because mm-hmm. we weren't thinking broader than just gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, physical Ability. Mm-hmm. Although physical ability probably would have been a good one because you probably might have had that conversation about hand it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but I, I just always, that's such a great story to me. And it was really interesting for the client. But thinking broader than just the narrow conversation on what's diversity is the first step. Mm-hmm. I love Garden Schwartz and Rose definition of the five layers of diversity. If you're not familiar with that, it's great. It goes beyond just the, you know, like you said, the Title Seven kind of uh, focus or the, or as I say, it's, it's, getting beyond the, yay, we have blank month kind of mentality mm-hmm. of, of inclusivity. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Or we go, yeah, or oh, our food is here. Yeah. Okay. Great. So that's a nice start, but, but really all those other pieces that make up our unique experience as a human add value to our diverse perspective of stuff. And I think smart businesses and smart leaders one, understand that, but then two, create that sense of belonging for all of those folks so that they can share their perspective, their unique perspective at whatever situation is at hand. One of the things that, that there are so many things I wanted to, you know, just kind of peel back on it, but I think I'll start with the first one being many leaders, many people in executive positions feel like if I have to deal with the feelings of other individuals or their emotional tenor or their different perspective, <laughs> it's going to slow my business down. I mean, I, that's common. I don't, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that the people who call me don't believe that. Mm-hmm. But when I talk to other coaches, when I talk to other consultants and trainers, that's exactly what they hear a lot in business here mm-hmm. um, out of it. And so when we talk about, and most businesses do not have a um, robust and probably successful leadership development program. Mm-hmm. Most leadership programs, as you know, focus really on this idea of, you know, George Patton leadership philosophy. And, you know, B-School is all filled with 
It's about the business. And if you understand the business and then we just kind of toss you in and the cream rises to the top or pull mm-hmm. yourself up by the bootstraps, then we'll understand leadership. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think a lot of that comes from the old adage of you're either born a leader or you <laughs> fall into the position because right. of the Peter principle, right? Yep. Yep. Um, out of it. For leaders to really be skilled at managing the communication and the emotionality around communication. And and when I say that, I'm talking about if you have a different idea or a different way of doing what I think are the goals, Mm -hmm. then we're going to have some dissent and discussion around it. How do you handle people who truly think that's the wrong way to go? How do you create, because in the leadership training or what are the kinds of experiences that you bring to the party when Mm -hmm. someone calls top dog? That helps them deal with this idea of not so much conflict, but just the emotional reaction, emotional agility of having to lead large scale change. And every day now, it's a large scale change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's. With any of the topics that we, we we come or bring to the table, whether it be leadership, change management, being more consciously inclusive, you know, I, I start with what makes up your business, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some clients will, oh, well, our, our factory or whatever. I'm like, no, no, lower. You know, and, and finally they'll get to the, oh, people. I'm like, great. Do people have emotions? No. Shenanigans. Yes, they do. Of course they do. We are creatures of emotion. So smart leaders and smart businesses know that and manage to that. And, and also smart businesses, when we look at the client base or, or your customer base or whoever you're targeting, will make emotional connections with that business and with those, those customers. You know, Two that I, I both internally worked with as well as externally are Disney and Tupperware. Yeah, Tupperware brands. And both very smartly look at the emotional connectedness of their consumers with their products and services and leverage that and, mm-hmm. and acknowledge that. And I mm-hmm. think any any industry can do that. There's a reason why someone's doing business with you. If it's just you're a service provider, you know, Masters Green and Galford's um, The Trusted Advisor book, fantastic. You know, if they're if you're just a service provider, people aren't going to stick around with you. You know, mm-hmm. they'll just they'll find the next one that can do the same service cheaper, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But if you're in that trust advisor space where people trust you, want to work with you, maybe are calling you, uh, not because they have a particular opening or or business transaction, but just want to get your perspective on things. Yeah, that's where we want to be. And so I think a smart leader is is thinking about their own internal customers, their team members in that same regard. And that you want to, I mean, someone asked me um, in an interview, they're like, do you know the secret to leadership? I'm like, I actually do. They're like, really? I'm like, yeah, you want to know it? Like, yeah, I do. So I could have taken my 356 page book, had one page with one word. Do you know what it is, Denise? No. It's trust. Mm -hmm. any, Any smart leader, any smart business, if you foster a sense of trust, with those around you, you are golden because mm-hmm. when someone trusts you, they'll go along with you, even if they're not solely on board with it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a smart leader is always finding ways to build and foster trust within their teams. How do you do that? Well, you do it by providing effective feedback. Mm-hmm. You, you, you set the context of their workspace to grow and you let them grow. And it's the, the farmer analogy of, of leadership where a farmer doesn't go out to his crops or her crops and say, grow, it." That's not how that works. But <laughs> really, they, we wish they could. Is Here. that why my garden doesn't work? <laughs> exactly. Dang it. <laughs> but, it but it's allowing, you know, they set the soil, they set the sunlight, the nutrients, all that good stuff, keep the predators out, set the context 
and allow the plants to do what it is that they do best. Mm -hmm. And that's a smart leader. And I mm -hmm. think we can all learn from the gardener analogy yeah. and figure out what can we do to set our garden up for success so that our team members grow the way they should be growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this, you know, taking that and going back over this idea of, of you know, real diversity, moving beyond just the physicality or the Title VII piece of it. It reminds me of a story of, I worked in an organization where, you know, we were going through being in HR, we have to, we, there was a time when we wanted to have pictures of everyone and their backgrounds and we had our little books and we did the nine dot, nine box thing so that everybody could, you know, oh, this is who this person is and this is why I think they should be promoted and blah, 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 blah. you know, that, that uh, black box thing that we never told employees about, but it was definitely... Right. <laughs> a review of the leaders. Succession planning. I know, succession planning. Succession planning right? <laughs> By years, yeah. And, you know, it was my responsibility to kind of get it. And this guy would just keep ducking and dodging me. And I never could figure out why I was duck he was ducking and dodging me. White guy, older guy, been in the business probably, you know, 30, 40 years. And as now is the vice president and head of one of our divisions. Couldn't figure out why he was ducking and dodging me. So finally, you know, the dogged person that I can be got him <laughs> and said, OK, I will sit here. You tell me I will fill in the blanks because we need to get this done for the meeting. And he looked at me and he said, Denise, I can't fill this out. And I said, why not? He says, because I don't have a college degree. Now, everybody else was yeah. from Harvard. Right, right, right. And, you know, top tier school, Stanford, <laughs> et cetera. So imagine, you know, when we talk about diversity and we're yeah. really taking diversity from its widest lens here, trying to create a culture where everybody, no matter what they're holding back. Mm -hmm. Here's a guy, 30 years, built a business. We acquired mm -hmm. his business. He was sharper than attack and probably the best you know, franchise leader that I'd ever met, period. Yeah. And yet he was hiding from us yeah. the fact that he didn't have a degree because he felt like he would lose respect in our workplace. Well, so, go, ahead. Well, go ahead. I was going to say, well, organizations have their own personality and, yeah. and organizations have their own bias. Mm -hmm. And and I've actually had this conversation with other HR people where, you know, it'll say something like, you know, college, you know, undergraduate degree or, or bachelor's required. And I always would call that out because the smartest person I know is my father. He has a high school degree. He was a, a tool and die maker by trade, insanely creative. I, mm -hmm. That's why I value creativity. For me, creativity is creative problem solving, not, not as well as the, the arts and all that fun stuff. And so, you know, we all personally have some biases and, and bias can be for or against something mm -hmm. and organizations have those biases for or against something. And sadly, this gentleman was, was trapped in the bias that, you know, only college educated people are smart. And those are yes. bunny years I'm doing for those who are just listening. <laughs> and, and I think that there are a lot of people and particularly HR, as I, as you said, HR, you know, now it used to be, we say, you know, you need a college degree or equivalent years of experience yeah. that has totally disappeared, yeah. which takes out anybody who might have learned how to apply their knowledge, but may mm -hmm. not understand the structure or the act, you know, the kind of the framework of it, you know, so this, oh, yeah. what do you go to Stanford and Washington University? It's because you want to get a framework of thinking, but it mm -hmm. doesn't teach you how to apply the knowledge. Amen. And, and, you know, another client I have, you know, she is struggling with, they've hired all these young, smart people, which there's nothing wrong with that. They all come from the Harvard, Stanford, mm -hmm. you know, crowd, Yale, et cetera. And they make the best PowerPoints you've ever seen. <laughs> they float and they pull the numbers and they've got the data points. And she asked them, so what does that mean? Uh. Crickets. <laughs> 
<laughs> how are we going to, how does this, how does this information flow to the strategy yep. and the, the implementation plan? Where's the implementation plan? Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> because to get that, you, you know, you start out with a framework, but then you've got to learn how to implement on the ground when things don't go right. And that is one of the things that we haven't talked about in because I believe that there's a couple of things that leadership programs today have to have that they didn't have previously. And one of them is understanding resilience. Mm-hmm. When things don't go well, how do you rally your tr- your troops around that? Yeah. And it isn't in the moment when things ain't going right. <laughs> but also, how do you hold yourself? How do you get over the emotionality? I mean, we've had a whole year and yeah. some businesses are, are thriving because they were able to pivot. We talk about successful businesses pivoting, but we're also you know, seeing you know, a third of almost, you know, I think it was the last study I saw a third of doctors and healthcare professionals, I won't say doctors, but healthcare professionals are saying they're out of the business Yeah. because of the way we treated them during this quarantine. Sure, sure. And, and not the, oh, we clapped and hey, thank you. But really the lack of wearing masks, the lack yeah. of of caring and taking care of yourself, being proactive about taking care of yourself has taken a toll on. When we look at teachers, we're seeing the same kind of thing of, I don't want to go through this again. And the lack of preparedness, the lack of protection from the company and the bosses uh, or the boss or the management team, whatever you want to call them, has really sullied the relationship. And the one thing I think about when you were talking about it is it all trust boils down to you get loyalty. And I'm not talking about the blind loyalty, but it's an affinity that, you know what, I'll go through the toughest things with you and come Mm -hmm. out on the other side and we will be stronger for it. And I think that kind of lessons are missing from leadership programs because we think we can teach them everything in a week. What do you think? (laughs) Well, well, you, you hit two massively like buttons on my my dashboard, if you will, in a great way. The first is, so when I worked at Disney, I worked for Disney Cruise Line. And early on, when we were just trying to get the operation going, myself or one of my, I was like an internal leadership consultant. So I would mm-hmm. work shoreside uh, and I'd go on board the ships and, and do training or whatever. And sometimes we just go on board to do what I affectionately called a ship dip, which is like you go on board, you dunk the crew in some sort of topic, customer service, whatever, yes. and then you, you run away. <laughs> and, and so if that's part of a sustained effort, that works fine. But what I find too often is within other organizations, they ship dip and think it's going to stick. And that's mm-hmm. just not how humans you know, change behavior. Mm-hmm. I, I, I equate it to, you know, every January COVID aside, my, you know, my, my gym is completely packed where people think, yeah, I'm going to go in for a week and I'm going to be fit. That's kind of not how fitness works. Yeah. And, and so I think that's one of the big problems I have with some of this training that, that happens within in the corporate world is, you know, you throw people through a three-day on-site workshop and yay, they're leaders. No, they're not. Um, that's a start, of course. And, and But changing behavior takes sustained commitment and, and energy to that. And that's why when when I think of it, you know, we're top dog learning group, mm-hmm. but I actually also worked at, at IBM for a while as a change management consultant. Mm-hmm. And I approach every learning intervention as a change project mm-hmm. because, you know, it yes, it's training, but it's also communication strategy. It's also executive sponsorship. It's the middle management support. It's the measurement strategy. These are all pieces that have to be there in order to see the change in behavior from, say, a leadership perspective or whatever. And so the second thing that I find really, um, really frustrating is, you know, you, you have these, these programs in a workplace that just are 
not real world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, to, mm-hmm. and you're to your beautiful point about like true application of stuff. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's some folks that do it right. There's some folks that have their leadership things and, and you know, it's over several long, long period of time and it's case study after case study and application after. Yes, that's cool. But when it's just this like, oh, you know, here's this model, have at it. Here's another model, have at it. Yeah, that's good. Oh, the herky the jer- I call it the herky jerky of learning, right? <laughs> yes. This this week we're going to be on, you know, Stephen Covey's model and then right. we're on, you know, John Lycione's model and then, yeah. oh, of course, we've got to get in Brene Brown model. Yes. Yeah. The flavor, the HR flavor of the month kind yes. of thing. And, and so, so I think models have their place. Absolutely. Of course they do. Uh, Cause I use them. I teach them, I make mm-hmm. them, but, but I think it's, it's, do they have a place that really makes an impact? And I think <laughs> this is why I didn't last very long in academia, quite frankly, because <laughs> I, you know, I, I got my doctorate. My doctorate is actually in instructional technology and distance education. So, wow, what timely time <laughs> right now. Distance <laughs> education. Yeah, mm. imagine that. Yeah. I mean, th- and I got it in 2005. The world was very different then. But but after I got my doctorate, I actually had the opportunity to go into a full-time visiting faculty position. And, and I lasted, well, Truth be told, my five-year grant got cut to one year, so I was gone in two semesters. Which was, I, you know, this is where God, universe, Buddha, Allah, whoever you you agree is a bigger entity, was totally looking out for me to be like, right. yeah, buddy, you're not supposed to be there because I, I would go into faculty meetings and I'd say, well, we really should take a, a client, a customer-centric attitude toward our students. And you know, one of my fellow faculty would be like, Dr. Acavelli, they are not buying their degree. I'm like, the heck they're not. Yeah. You know, and this is 2005 before really, really strong distance learning programs popped up. Right, but right. I was just like, you can go down the street to uh, Valencia Community College, which is an insanely awesome community college here in Central Florida. I'm like, and they can get their just fine degree. And I think it's to your point about you know that bias. I've always had a bias that just because you have a degree doesn't make mm-hmm. you smart versus just because you don't have a degree doesn't make you dumb yes, and, yes. and I, I, or I, incapable. I or incapable or whatever. I've always had that awareness. Yeah. And so I never had the, you know, someone's like, Oh, I went, I went to insert Ivy league. I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. You know, good for you. I'm sure it's hard to get into, but I, I you know, back in the day, I dated somebody who was a, a Yale graduate. I'm like, Oh my gosh, really? How did you get in? And <laughs> kind of realized I think there was a family name on one of the buildings, but that's yeah. fine. Um, but you know, I think heard I think, about that. Yeah, yeah, that happens. But I but I think you know, if when we ha- when we get rid of that kind of bias, right, and you really start to look at, okay, great, you got some smarts. How do you apply them? Mm-hmm. That practitioner focused idea is mm-hmm. really super important in business, regardless of what's on the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, we've been talking and talking about leadership development, et cetera. And, you know, when we're talking about diversity, you know, we're just now bringing in the the question of diversity around LBGQT folks. And so, you know, most HR people are not um, skilled and I'm not taking it from me or anything else. John, Josh Bursting did a study on it and 3,500 HR people participated in it and said that they're at the beginning levels of DNI. Mm-hmm. which is a bit shocking, yes. but it's, it also, I also thought it was very brave that they chose to self-identify that yeah. they really don't know a lot about this particular area when an organization really looks to HR to be the leader in doing this. Right, 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 right. right. So when it comes to recruiting, what are some of the things that they do wrong? And in terms of retaining employees, what do they do that, you know, just kind of is, we need to stop doing and what do we need to start doing? <sighs> 
I think the number one thing to stop doing in the workplace is make us others be the educators and bear the brunt of the educational strategy for the business when it comes to being more inclusive. Okay. I, especially since last year, see so many of my black and brown brothers and sisters, my trans brothers and sisters, who all of a sudden are like the spokes model for their otherness within the business. And, okay. and I'm not saying we don't have that opportunity to, to educate, but don't, don't expect yeah. Because, I mean, I, I can only speak from my experience. Sometimes it's exhausting just being, you know, a homosexual in this world. I can't imagine what, when I look at the intersectionality of my black and brown gay brothers and sisters, what that exhaustion's like, or, mm-hmm. or my, my black and brown trans brothers and sisters. You know, so it's like, ask us. And if we have the energy, of course, we will try to educate and change the, the thoughts and minds of people. But I think that's the number one thing I see way too much of mm-hmm. is, is the reliance of teaching that the perspective and the business reason why we should embrace diversity and inclusion on, on us other folks. Mm-hmm. And, and I think to me, that's the number one thing. So what does that mean? That means HR friends, you know, you have some education to do and, and your study supports that greatly. And I think that's fantastic. You know, that, that self-awareness is, is great. So now where do we go for that education? Well, that, that is maybe asking those other resources, you know, no, I'm not going to send you to the, like the all company hands-on to talk about your trans experience, but can you and I have a coffee and you help educate me and I want to be a better ally. And I'm going to do that through trying to listen and, and listen to understand to get back to that Stephen Covey quote. And I also think too, that it, it's going to those other resources that are out there. There are tons for all of us different minority folks that are there to provide support to bring that message to your workplace. Yeah, and whether, yeah. you know, for example, if it's at Out and Equal, which is a group that I'm affiliated with, or, or the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, which I'm also affiliated with, you know, there's tons of resources. So you don't have to just rely on your internal peeps to kind of do the heavy lifting, find those external resources and start to leverage them to, to really help ch- kind of change that behavior in tandem with helping people just to be a more consciously inclusive leader. And that's my big story. My, my not so hidden agenda is to help leaders be more consciously inclusive. What's that mean? That's allyship. That's mm-hmm. really being out there to say, huh, I may not be the best, you know, understanding of, in my case, I'll say, you know, women's experience in the workplace, but what could I do? Well, I joined the women's group when I was at IBM because I'm like, how can I be a better ally? You female coworkers tell me, and I'll use my, my male advantage to your advantage to help level the playing field as best as I can. Right, right, right. And so be part of those groups and have relationships with it, which I think for many people is very scary for them because, you know, we live in a world where we don't want to make mistakes and it seems, and people are very sensitive right now, or I shouldn't say sensitive, but raw. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are very raw and it's very hard to talk about this when you're trying to have an experience, when you're trying to share an experience with someone who's going to do the laser 50 questions on you. Well, how does that feel? Why did you do that? I don't understand. Um, Out of it. And I think one of the skills that we don't teach and we don't embrace is, you know, witnessing by listening. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the best way to do is just to witness with me by just simply listening, which the hardest part about listening is keeping your mouth shut. (laughs) We have two ears and one mouth for a reason. That's exactly right. And I think (laughs) that's the one thing that we don't teach. And that's one of the things I shouldn't say, because I have a list of things, as you probably know, that that need to go into programs that, you know, we need to understand how to how to witness by listening 
Yep. But we also need to understand how to surrender. And I, yeah. surrender doesn't mean giving up. Surrender just means that I'm just not attached to your result. If you think that's the best way to go, then I'm okay with that. Yeah. And that being being okay with that means that I can still support you on it and I can mm-hmm. find commonality on it. And then we can find allyship or partnership in yeah. doing it. When I was setting out to write Pride Leadership, which the full name is Pride Leadership Strategies for the LGBTQ Plu Leader to the King or Queen of Their Jungle. Mm-hmm. And I was I was going to write just kind of a generic buddy years leadership book. And, and I started kind of like sketching it out and on, on the on the walls of my office with post right. notes, thinking about, you know, what are the competencies that I've seen successful leaders do? And then I started looking at other queer leaders out, you know, I do a lot of social justice work and things of that nature. So, you know, leadership, of course, is always top of my mind, but I was really, really starting to get into it for the book. Mm-hmm. And and then do you remember Sex in the City, the TV yeah. show? Yeah. yeah. So Carrie, Carrie Bradshaw will always go, I couldn't help but wonder. And she'd start typing away on her Mac. Well, that was me back when I was writing Pride Leadership. I'm like, I couldn't help but wonder, is being an LGBTQ plus person give you an opportunity to flex successful leadership competency muscles just differently than our straight mm-hmm. brothers and sisters? And mm-hmm. so that's kind of how the book came about. I picked six that I felt that any leader needs to really understand to be successful okay. today, which is you know leveraging authenticity, having leadership courage, being empathetic, mm-hmm. effective communication, building relationships, and shaping culture. Mm-hmm. And then I put those six through the queer lens, and that's kind of how Pride Leadership came about. And when I got the first, first manuscript edits from Heather, my editor, which I just like saying that, Heather, Heather the editor, because <laughs> I like that's such a cool title. So Heather, the editor, calls me, and I'm nervous like a school kid, you know, getting to the principal's office. And she's like, okay, Steve, I have to preface something. I'm like, okay. She's like, I am not your target audience for this book. I'm a white cisgendered straight woman. I'm like, and she's like, this is the book I wanted in my MBA program for leadership. I'm like, great. And I said, why? And she's like, because it's solid leadership theory, but with cheeky dad jokes and it's approachable and it's funny. And I'm like, yay. She's like, you should de-gay the book. I'm like, no. I will not do that. <laughs> I said, allies will enjoy it as well. And then, and that's actually what I've been discovering. We created, you know, an on, there's an eight week online training program that goes with it. Yeah. And we have about, it's about 40 to 60, 40% allies, 60% LGBTQ plus folks going through. And it's fantastic. And, you know, they get my cheeky jokes, like, you know, finding your RuPaul is one of the titles in the uh, chapter on uh, mentorship, you know, like silly things like that, mm-hmm. but it, it makes it memorable. And, and it, but it's, so, it's really things that make somebody more consciously inclusive. And I'm so excited because I, I think to your, your question before, Denise, you know, what do leaders need in the workplace? These things yeah. Yeah, that focus on being courageous, that understanding of having empathy and, and really being able to foster relationships, which fosters trust. Mm-hmm. I think that's the fun stuff about doing what it is that we do. And how can you, you put that in a wrapper that makes somebody successful, not just in the workplace, but really well beyond that. Yeah. 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 And just for those who have not heard me get on my soapbox about empathy, I want you to remember that empathy is compassion with accountability. So just because I empathize with you does not mean that I cannot hold you accountable. It is a skill, but empathy is not a pass that says just because something happened and this is how you feel, you have no accountability around right. it. And I think this idea of holding people accountable is one of the things that we really have to add to the list, but also the thing that I spend most time talking about cultures, because yeah. cultures have to be a culture. If you're going to have a top performing, inclusive uh, culture, then it has to be a culture that is full of accountability and good boundaries. So, you know what? Cannot believe that we are at the end. <laughs> oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. We got to do this again. 
because I still want to get into the whole idea about privilege. And you taught me yes. this word of micro advantages versus yep. my, versus privilege versus microaggressions. And we need to have that conversation. And you're such a wonderful guest. So happy, Aww, so, thank you. you know, full of wisdom, etc. How can people get a hold of you? The easiest thing is just to head over to our website, topdoglearning.biz, B-I-Z. There you can find out about me and my team, some of the online courses we have, keynote opportunities, blah, blah, blah. We're also, there's also a, a bunch of stuff on, on the book, Pride Leadership, as well as some of the other books that I've written. My one was called Overcoming Poopy E-Learning. So it's obviously you, you see a pattern to my humor within the books, but, but really just a uh, top dog. You, and you did say is, poopy, not puppy. Okay. Poopy, P-O-O-P-Y. <laughs> love it. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, we have had a fabulous conversation. I hope you take away a couple of things. You know what I always say, if you didn't like it, share it. If you like to share it, because I guarantee mm-hmm. that this will generate a conversation where you will learn something about yourself and other people around. Again, you've been listening to Denise Cooper on Closing the Gap. This is the place where we figure out where you are today, where you want to be tomorrow, and how to take small steps over time that will achieve amazing results. And with that, see ya! Hey, that's a wrap. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for listening to this podcast. Please leave comments below. I'd love to know what you're thinking. If you liked it, share it. If you didn't like it, share it, because I guarantee it's going to start a conversation that will help you close the gap. I want to thank the C-Suite Radio Network for hosting my podcast. It is the largest network dedicated to the growth and development of leaders worldwide. I'd also like to thank Ivan G. Hall for the music that you are currently enjoying. Hey, check him out. He's really a great musician. And finally, I have two other requests. One is, please, please, please leave a review on this, either on Apple or Google, wherever you get your podcast. And the other is, don't forget, please look up my book, Remarkable Leadership Lessons, Change Results, One Conversation at a Time. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble in paperback as well as Kindle versions. And with that, it's a wrap. Talk to you next week. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.